This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP, a new vision of aging. Support CARP with your membership today. Visit carp.ca. Good afternoon and welcome to the Zoomer Week in Review, all things Zoomer worldwide. I'm Libby Snymer. Why government numbers don't tell the whole story of the toll of COVID-19 in long-term care and waiting for a lung transplant in the age of COVID-19. But first, here are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. A survey commissioned by H&R Block Canada finds that 45% of Canadians have taken advantage of the extended deadline to file taxes. The normal April 30th deadline passed last Thursday. But with most taxpayers either getting refunds or owing nothing, it's hard to see the advantage of filing late. You have until June the 1st to file personal returns and until June the 15th if you're self-employed. And if you owe money, you have until September 1st to pay. For the first time in its history, the U.S. Supreme Court is hearing arguments by telephone. Six of the justices are 65 or older, which puts them at greater risk of COVID-19. Legal experts are split on whether the experiment will lead the court to routinely livestream its arguments. Meanwhile, Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg was hospitalized this week for treatment of a gallstone, but worked from hospital until she was released. With millions of people working from home virtually during the pandemic, bookshelves have emerged as the background of choice. And it's led to an online competition in Portugal to find the best home library. Opinions are flooding into the 2020 Portuguese Bookshelf Championship. And you may not be able to judge a book by its cover, but it seems you can judge a person by their books. Sophie Gregoire Trudeau has launched a podcast called We Wellbeing. Canada's First Lady discusses the mental health challenges of COVID-19 and features conversations with mental health experts and famous guests like Olympian Silken Lauman. The third episode features her mother-in-law, Margaret Trudeau, who suffers from mental illness and has been a longtime advocate. The 45-year-old Gregoire Trudeau recovered from COVID-19 after being diagnosed in mid-March. I love champagne and I've already had half a glass and tonight I'm going to have a great many more. Judy Dench has become the oldest person to be featured on the cover of British Vogue. The 85-year-old Oscar-winning actress appears on the June issue and Vogue's editor calls Dench one of the nation's most beloved citizens. The cover becomes the latest in a string of honors for the age-defying stage and screen actress who was named to the Order of the British Empire in 1970 and honored with the title of Dame Commander of the British Empire in 1988. I'm Libby Zneimer, and those are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. 
This week, we learned the devastating news that Canada has the highest proportion of COVID-19 deaths in long-term care in the Western world. And the National Institute on Aging says official numbers do not even reveal the full picture because they exclude retirement homes. According to their figures, a staggering 82% of this country's COVID deaths occur in these care settings, which house only 1% of the population. I talked with Dr. Samir Sinha, one of Canada's leading geriatricians. The challenge is, is that when the government is actually presenting numbers, they're presenting the numbers of what we call long-term care or nursing homes, for example. But there's actually more uh, retirement homes in Ontario that are all privately operated than actual nursing homes in Ontario. So about 770 retirement homes. And when you actually think about the populations in retirement homes, those are all equally being treated like nursing homes under the government's eyes. So they've, um, they're all under the same orders. They have older people who are also vulnerable, many who are receiving care. Um, and therefore, we're actually counting all the retirement homes that have been affected. Do you hope that this will somehow lessen uh, the spread? Yeah, we, I mean, we think this will be helpful because basically you can't fight a fire blindfolded, right? So when people are saying, oh, well, there's only 170 homes affected, but they're not actually keeping track of the retirement homes, you know, in terms of that overall total. And when people can't actually visualize what's actually happening in an easy-to-read Google map, for example, um, you can see that all of a sudden people might misunderestimate or might, might underestimate um, what the actual issue is at, at play. That's why we've actually created this. At the very beginning of this, you wrote very poignantly about breaking down in tears when you realized what was happening to our elderly. Absolutely. I mean, when you see the stories that are coming out of some of the most hardest hit homes, especially, uh, I think what drove me to tears was the dispatches we were hearing from Maison Heron in uh, in Quebec, for example, where you were hearing about, you know, uh, local officials coming into a home and just finding that there are barely any staff left and that residents had been left dead in their beds or others had been found, you know, just not changed for days. You can't even imagine when people were co- were comparing what they saw to scenes from a concentration camp that we could actually let things get so bad and that it could lead to that. This is why both governments, you know, have since that time compelled hospitals to get involved and, and to share staff where they can um, and other resources and even the army in both provinces. For a while... Everybody was looking at this, and there was no way to look away. But people are starting to be focused on reopening the economy. Do you worry that that the focus on long-term care will be dissipated? Well, I think there's two stories that are going to happen here. I think one is the government um, obviously is committed to trying to reduce the number of deaths that will occur. I am concerned, though, that, you know, as public sentiment says, well, that was a tragedy. That's pretty sad. But unfortunately, public sentiment starts to change with time. um, And people are stir crazy. People want the economy to be moving again. People want to be out there. And unfortunately, we start hearing um, phrases like what uh, MP Mark Dalton out of of BC said a few weeks ago saying, you know, well, most of these people are going to be dead within a year anyways. So, you know, why, you know, if, if the deaths are concentrated there, what's the big deal? This helps the surface those ageist views that we have in our 
society, I'm concerned that that's where public sentiment and public focus is going to compel the government to maybe take actions that could harm more people who are living in these homes. Canada currently has the dubious honour out of 14 countries of having the highest death rates in long-term care in the world. Wow. When we have that dubious distinction there, that actually, you know, this is where we've actually seen the highest proportion of our deaths being in long-term care homes. Um, I'm hoping that that compels us to change, but I, you know, I, I don't know if it will. We also learned here in Ontario that before the peak, a lot of people were moved from alternate level of care in hospitals into nursing homes. And that was done partly because emergency rules were put in place where people no longer had a choice about where to go. And if they said no, there were some dire consequences and, and people in alternate level of care were put at the top of the crisis list. Were those mistakes? Were those good decisions? Well, I think what was happening beforehand, um, it was that basically if there were empty beds within a long-term care setting, for example, um, the government was basically trying to say that we anticipated that our hospitals would be overrun um, with people having COVID. And if you were um, living in a hospital for two or three years, for example, waiting for your preferred accommodation, um, you're still able to re- wait for your preferred accommodation, but we wanted people to be living um, in a long-term care setting as opposed to a hospital where you'd probably at that time have a greater chance of dying because it would be filled with people uh, with COVID. Um, So I think this is the goal at the very start of this was to try and maximize capacity. Now the work has actually uh, been going on to say, how do we actually support people in these care homes to get the care they need? And in some cases, for example, where homes are an outbreak and homes are really struggling with staffing, um, residents have actually been admitted to hospitals or to field hospitals so that they could receive care um, uh, while their home actually recovered as well. Anything you want to leave us with? You know, that I, I just hope that none of us forget that uh, we need to fix the system because one day we could be a part of it um, and we would have wanted someone else to make sure it was fixed before we needed it as well. So we owe it to the 425,000 Canadians who are living in these settings to do our very best and to not ignore um, the thousands of lives that have already been lost um, and to not have had them die in vain. Dr. Samir Sinha, thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for having me, Libby. That was Dr. Samir Sinha. The province has released a framework for resuming elective surgeries, but so far there's no timeline, and it will be up to individual hospitals. I talked with Lindsay forsyth Brochu, a young woman waiting for a double lung transplant. I have a rare condition called pulmonary hypertension. My arteries are constricted, and there's not enough oxygen and blood flow going through my lungs and my heart. So because my lungs aren't getting the oxygen they need, the heart is actually working overtime. And right now my heart is actually working harder. So the more harder it works, um, the more I can go into heart failure. So they kind of go hand in hand. Yes, I have a lung disease, but if it gets really bad, I could go into heart failure. How old are you? I am 31. How long have you had this condition? My symptoms first started in 2016, and that's when I went to the doctor, Um, and that's kind of how the testing got started. Um, They sent me for a lung function test, 
and uh, I only scored 30% function. So my lungs were not working as well as they should be. Um, so that raised a red flag, more testing, CT scans, echocardiograms, all of that. So my official diagnosis was in October of 2018. Wow, it took a long time. Yes, the average is about two years to find diagnosis because it is so rare. When were you told that what you really needed was a transplant? Around six months ago, it kind of got started that we kind of knew that it was going that direction. But, uh, you know, we kept up with the testing and now it's to the point where I really do need one because we don't really know how much time I have left. Are you at the top of the list then? Now, because my blood work is showing that my heart is working three times harder than it was one and a half months ago, they bumped me up to uh, the top of the list, which is category three, and that's the highest category um, on the transplant list. How long would you typically have to wait at the top of the list? Right. So just because I'm, say I'm at the top of the list, I may not necessarily be a match so somebody below me might get it because they match better in terms of body size and blood type. So both of those things are a big factor in getting the lungs. How has this all affected you then that everything in terms of transplants is on hold for the moment? When I signed to go through with the transplants um, back in March, that's when COVID had you know, started and the transplant program had actually gone on hold the day before I got listed. So, you know, mentally, emotionally, physically, you're ready. You know, you want to start your life with a brand new set of lungs, be able to do the things that you can't do now. And uh, to have that kind of thrown back in your face to do it all over again once COVID is over, it's, it's you know, frustrating. It's a big adjustment. What are the things that you can't do? So um, my husband and I were very active, you know, hiking, um, walking our dogs, um, traveling. So um, those are really big things that we love to do. And I can't even walk my dogs now. I'm too short of breath, yet alone going up a flight of stairs. But uh, the list uh, has, you know, started up again. So... I was told Monday that I could get a call anytime now for lungs. So we are hopeful that things are going to start moving along, not just for myself, but everybody else who's in the same situation. I can only imagine how difficult this is, but hopefully you'll get your lungs and your cover and everything be fine. I appreciate that. And I just hope everybody else can get their new organs that they're waiting for so patiently (laughs) because we're all in this together. Yeah. Lindsay Forsyth Brochu, thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for having me. Bye-bye. Bye. That was Lindsay Forsyth Brochu. She's waiting for a double lung transplant. Brings us to the end of this edition of the Zoomer Week in Review. I'm Libby Snymer. Thanks for joining me today. Be sure to come back next week to stay up to date with all things Zoomer worldwide. Zoomer Week in Review is produced by Zeev Hadi, Christine Ross, and Paul Thomas. Technical producer, Justin Eacock. Executive producer, Moses Snymer.
This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.